If you don't have a Bible, I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. Just raise your hand, and um, we will um, give one to you. If you don't own one and you'd like to read it, you can keep it. That's our gift to you, uh, because, we, you know, look at, there are a couple things that I've, I mean, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and I had a lot of problems with a lot of what I saw, and to be honest, a lot of it really was just un- unkempt, untempered authority that people seem to be wielding. And uh, not that I have a problem with authority. Well, yeah, I do probably, but uh, naturally. But there had to be some form of checks and balance system. And I've just noticed that when, when you open up God's Word, it really just has this way of kind of shutting things down. And a lot of this, this, the, the liberties that people take to sort of build empires in their own names really just get shut down. And I'm really thankful for that. Because, you know, let's just face it, there are certain areas people just build franchises. Love is one of them. Certainly, I hate to use the term religion because that's normally like a cocktail of, you know, tradition and politics, uh, both of which I really am not enormously fond of in and of themselves. Uh, anyways, with all that said, I just want you to be able to know that, like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. My goal is to actually open up this book and expect God to speak to you. And I don't even have to do anything special for that to happen. That's the good news. Uh, nonetheless, go ahead and open those Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 10. Uh, you're probably aware we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Scripture. And what that does is it doesn't allow us to avoid anything, and it doesn't allow us to spend 300 weeks on something the Bible doesn't spend 300 weeks on. So, we are in John chapter 11. We left off at verse 10, so we pick, off, we pick up today in verse 11. Read along with me, if you would, please. John chapter 10, verse 11. It says this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he was not the shepherd. One who does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming, or the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, again he reiterates. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must also bring. They will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I receive from my Father. Therefore, there was division among the Jews because of these things. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Will you pray with me, please? Lord, here we are now. We're in this room and we're seeking you. We're asking, Lord, for you to do something amazing in this time. Redeem every second. Prepare us, Lord, for communion. Prepare us, Lord, for things that maybe we didn't come in here expecting. But I know you know how to speak fluent us, every one of us. And because of that, something radical could happen in this room. And I think of every person that I know that has a testimony of falling in love, most of them I hear fell in love at a day when they weren't expecting it. They encountered someone so profound and so just jazzed their groovy in such a way that they just couldn't help it. So I pray in that same way you blindside us today. 
I mean, there are some who come today with great appetites expecting to be fed, and I pray you would meet them. There are those who come maybe with great trepidation and nervousness and and just because this isn't something they normally do, I just pray, Lord, that they would see your love for them today and your call, your call to them, that they would hear your voice, not just mine, but yours speak to them today. So bespoke a word for each of us individually, right? In a way that we can hear it, in a manner that we can hear it. Overcome every language barrier, every cultural barrier, and to be honest, every natural barrier that we might set up in pride or in history or information we think somehow has allowed us to build a fortress against your love. And yet, Lord, today, may your word build bulwarks over those things, ramparts that could take us over those so that today we would realize what it is you want from us, our love and what you offer us, yours. So, minister here. Open us up for this, I pray. Prepare us. Give us ears that surprisingly hear more than we expect, and hearts that surprisingly are pricked more than we anticipated, minds that are actually activated and not just sort of set aside. Redeem every second now and bring us all to you. By the power of your Spirit, do your work. I surrender myself to you and say, immerse me, come upon me, and do all that you want now. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Like always, please don't, like I said, don't just believe me. Search the scripture, let the Bible be your authority. Now, if God were to try to speak to us and try to relate to us, how in the world would he do it in a way that we could understand? I mean, obviously, we have certain things that we have in common being American. I know that probably surprises you. You hear me talk and you think, oh, I just think that guy is completely British. Uh, well, obviously, that's different. What would it be like to try to relate? We can build on certain things that we have in common, some of the television shows that we may have seen or some of the movies, for instance. Uh, it's interesting. There's some places that doesn't necessarily work, but here I think there's some that I can walk up and go, amen, and some might get what I'm trying to go at. But when God wants to do it, he has to go beyond a culture and he has to go beyond a people and an age group and a location. How does he do that? Well, he chooses to do that through relationships. And the more profound the relationship, the more God uses it. He uses that of a, of a husband in love with a woman, in love with his wife, a father in love with his children, obviously a very different kind of love, but nonetheless, a husband to his wife, a father to his children, a friend that stays closer than the brother. Every beautiful relationship that we could actually imagine, God is actually used in Scripture because he wants us to recognize God's not just something distant that created us like his ESPN to watch and somehow when all of that, kind of see how we work it out. God wants a relationship with us. But I know for a fact that God knew there would be an England, so God chose another relationship. Beyond that of husband and wife, beyond that of father and son or child, beyond that of a friend that sticks closer to than a brother, God knew there would be an England, so God chose another relationship, and that is the relationship of a person to their animal. Yes, I, you know, one thing I've realized when I first came to this country was how it was that people had this problem showing any form of affection to each other unless it was an animal, in which case they could dote completely over them, and that didn't seem to be in any way culturally weird. It was something I was trying to observe. Now, God created shepherds. Abel, Adam, 
You could say Noah other than his shipbuilding business. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, they all lived by and cared for animals. Now why? God created this relationship because he really wanted us to be able to understand. He wants us to relate to him. And this is a relationship we relate to. Now interesting, I do find two kind of side notes and they're interesting things. I mean, one is that these shepherds, and we'll talk about the difference of certain animals, obviously, as we portray, work our way into the text, that according to Genesis 46:34, God tells us that this emblem of, of the world, Egypt, actually hates shepherds. It actually it goes beyond that to the point where it says that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Those were actually caregivers of, in essence, defenseless animals. Actually, in the culture that they were in, they found them despicable in their mindset. That was the idea. And, and I think that's interesting that the carers of the helpless here were actually considered, in that sense, despised. Now, that same group, I find it interesting, a family of shepherds will enter into the world that hates them, into Egypt, and they'll wind up being persecuted and slaves to death in many cases. And I think that's interesting. That's where they wound up. I don't find it actually odd to think that it would be of all the different groups of people or occupations that show up at the at the crib of Jesus, if you will, at the manger of Jesus, it was shepherds. We don't read that it was a bunch of masons or a bunch of you know, you know, stonemakers or, or woodworkers. We don't read it was a bunch of doctors or it was a bunch of completely erudite individuals. We found that it was a group of people that knew what it was like to care for the helpless, and they show up at the crib of Jesus. And I think that that's amazing. Now, as I started to think through this text, one of the things I started to realize is that the animal we seem to, to link with often kind of somewhat defines us. And this was something I knew way, way back in my single years. And that was way, way back. But, you know, there are some people and they call them dog people. And they're very, very different from cat people who are very, very different from fish people who are extremely different from lizard people. Now, and I started thinking about it, and I realized, now I have a friend, one of my pastors uh, back in the States, he's a dog person, and he is, in essence, the poster boy for the dog people. And every time they get a new dog, and they've gone through a few, they get old, and they ultimately pass away. Uh, I find it interesting, when they actually get a dog, they send a birth announcement or an adoption notice to us. We've now adopted our beautiful little baby boy, and we call him Babe or Gracie. Or, I mean, I just find it interesting. It and I realized that dog people, they tend to just take this animal and they adopt them. But then cat people, they actually get an animal and they hope sooner or later the cat will adopt them. Let's just be honest. Because the cat kind of looks at you and is like, like that's ever going to happen. And I look at fish people, unless it's elaborate or exotic, I kind of get the idea they're kind of intentionally absentee parents, if you think about it. So they really don't have to do much. And then I look at lizard people and I realize, reptile people, and if you're kind of those people, I'm not trying to insult you. I just kind of get their sort of general, you know, ideas that come with these things. And, and, and with lizard people, or if you will, reptile people, I kind of always assume that they're going to be LARPing somewhere until Comic-Con. And, and I realized, then they're like animal monks, like Jane Goodall, and then they're animal extremists, like PETA. But they're, for the most part, I realized, when I, you know, it's like, hey, I've got a cat. Okay, I kind of get an idea. Uh, I've got a dog. I kind of get an idea. But then what about sheep people? I mean, that's different, of course, than all of these things. Now, our youngest, she's 14, Ruthie, she has a bird. I mean, we're going to be fair to say she has it, although, I mean, she does clean the cage, so we'll, we'll grant her that. But you look at that bird, and that bird stops everything, and he stares at you, and he turns his head to make sure he's got his eye on you, and I realize, man, he is studying me. 
Now, because he's a bird of prey, he's probably deducing the threat level. If he was a predator, he'd probably be contemplating my caloric count. But I realize, when I look at that, I realize that, that there's this interesting thing about birds that are just staring at you. And you can look at a cat, and people do this all the time. They take videos, and it's like, what's the cat thinking? Or what's the dog thinking? But you look into the face of a sheep, and you genuinely think you're looking straight into the back of his head. Very, very different animal. They have a tension span of a squirrel on Red Bull. They have the direction sense of a March Hare with Alzheimer's. I mean, I think it's interesting. They could bend around a tree and they get lost. They have the memory of a blue tang fish like Dory. But worse yet, they're defenseless and they don't seem to know it around each other. I mean, the only thing that they have is a hard head that's covered in cushion. Now, how in the world does that work? Now, who takes care of people like this? Because they're definitely a special breed. If you will, they're the caregivers of the animal world. Now, I look at this and I realize a shepherd chooses to give his life for the helpless, the wandering, the timid, and yet very proud and extremely yummy dish of the animal world. You enter into your life knowing that your life is on call at all times to creatures who are prone to brainlessly meander into peril regularly. And without a good shepherd, they're dead meat. Literally. And I realized throughout Scripture, as God starts to use these people that become shepherds, they get it. David, our shepherd king, understood this when he says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, it's such a beautiful thing that even people who don't really kind of have a decent idea of God really still think it's pretty enough to put up on their wall. But understand, for David, he looked and he's like, these are complete and bluttering idiots that are helpless and they'll beat on each other as if they're Rambo or, if you will, Lambo. But uh, in all of that, somehow they get out to anywhere else and they're afraid of a brook, they're afraid of a wind, they're afraid of anything else. But then they'll come back to each other and be like, that didn't scare me. And I realize David looks at all of that and he goes, man, that is so me. And I realize the responsibility of a shepherd is a constant duty. And yet David, when he writes Psalm 23, he writes it as a celebration. You see, there's something interesting when you actually have somebody that is genuinely cares enough and powerful enough to take care of you and genuinely intends to, that you just don't have to be all that anymore. That's part of the fun. You don't have to prove you're running the universe, and you don't have to have all the answers because, well, you're not running it. Other psalmists like Asaph understood that. In Psalm 78:52, he says that let his own people go forth like sheep, and he guided them in the wilderness like a flock, as he talks about the wilderness time of Exodus. In Leviticus and Numbers, Psalm 79, 13, Asaph says, We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Psalms 95 and Psalm 100, whoever wrote them, because it doesn't actually give clarity on who it is, both say the same thing. We're the sheep of your hand. We're the sheep of your pasture. And I realize that these writers, these songwriters, if you will, understood the parallel between people who are, in the simplest sense, headstrong and yet helpless. And the leaders of God's people then were to act as simply, to act as shepherds. You realize when you are actually seeking to help people, you're going to be dealing with this. You're going to deal with headstrong, yet helpless, proud, yet foolish, easily lost. Now, that may seem insulting to you. Well, sometimes reality is. Now understand, though the people that were to lead God's people were to be considered shepherds because of that, 
we found that not every one of them was good. All the way back in the book of Genesis, we have that Abraham, and then we have Isaac, and then Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob, and then he has 12 kids, 12 boys. And the 11th of those 12 is a guy named Joseph. And Joseph is actually sent in Genesis 37 to check up on his older, his 10 older brothers, who, by the way, of course, were shepherds. And what he finds is that they were terrible, terrible shepherds. First of all, they had sort of, in essence, appeared to have abandoned the sheep at Dothan. And then it gets even crazier in that they look at their brother, and they, they see him as a favorite among, his, uh, among the uh, his father and among the boys. And they look and they're like, you know, let's just kill him. And then one of the brothers looks at Judah and he goes, you know, we can't kill him. He's our brother. Let's sell him. And so they sell him off. And I get the idea that it's his own family that betrays him and sells him off. Because in essence, he came to check up on the shepherds and they were bad. And they were really upset about that. I think God was preparing us. Fast forward from that moment a couple thousand years to roughly about the 500s, well, yeah, clearly the 500s um, B.C. The southern area of, of Judah was actually taken captive in three campaigns. The, the first one, they took all of the, sort of, in essence, the choicest guys, the guys that would look good, and then they castrated them and then actually had them serve in the, in the temple, or, sorry, serve in the palace. So you genuinely don't want to say, hey, I made it to that one. Uh, and then there was a second group. There was 10,000 that were taken captive and brought at a brook called the Brook Chabar. And of them was a guy named Ezekiel. Now, that is in essence about 595 B.C., 593 B.C. And while that is happening, he starts to write and he gets these visions and God starts to speak. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 34. I am against the shepherds of Israel. He says, let me tell you why. Because instead of feeding them, they're feeding themselves on those sheep. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those that were sick, nor have you bound up the broken, nor brought back that which was driven away, nor sought that which was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Hey, look, if you've looked at stuff and you've seen a problem with religion because what you saw was this, you need to understand you are actually getting the cue with God because God has a real problem with it. And you'd start to say, well, then why doesn't God just blast them and leave them just sort of a pile of ashes in front of us? Because God, strangely enough, even loves them. And he wants them to change their mind and repent. And if God just blasted everyone who said something stupid and blasphemous to God, well, first of all, there'd be no Byrons left. I've learned that this week. But beyond that, I realized that which one of us would be standing? And you realize he's patient because he really wants you to change your mind. But I remember reading this and going, the weak, the sick, the broken, the driven away, the lost. I mean, God's like, that's... Remember when we planted our first church, he's like, that's what your church is going to look like. It's that group. But God's response to that, listen, because now we're getting to the text. Right after that, God says in Ezekiel 34, same chapter, verse 10, says, behold, this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I'm against those shepherds. I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep. In other words, I'm going to hand them their P45s. And the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. I will deliver my flock from their mouths, and they will no longer be food for them. And then God says, thus says the Lord God in verse 11, Indeed, I myself will search out those sheep. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them. I will bring them out. I will feed them, he says, at least three different times in a row, and then I'll make them lie down. I will seek that which was lost. I will bring back what was driven away. I will bind up the broken. I will strengthen that which was sick. I will destroy them, those that are fat and strong in their place. And I realized what God is saying in Ezekiel 34, and don't miss this, this is 
over a half a millennium before Jesus comes onto earth as, as we know him. What God is saying is, look at there are guys and they have set up their empire and they are abusing people and I have had it. So because there's no one I'm seeing that's willing to step up, I'll do it myself. They are bad shepherds, and so I am going to come in and I'm going to take this over for myself. And the last time I saw somebody check up on bad shepherds, that was Joseph, and it didn't work out so well for him. He was betrayed by his family. He was sold out and ultimately, strangely enough, thrown in a pit, rises from that pit, and then after rises from that pit, becomes the savior of the Gentile world and then of the the Jewish world as well. Now, consider this. When Jesus then speaks in John chapter 10, Jesus is using what we would call a definite article. Now, look at verse 11 with me. He says, I am the good shepherd. He doesn't say I'm a good shepherd, as if what he's basically saying is I'm better than all of the other guys. He's saying I am the. Now, the means it's a specific one. Well, what specific one is he speaking about? All the way back 550 years before, 580 years before, 590 years we realize that Jesus is saying, I'm the guy that's going to step in that I promised you over half a millennia ago when I said, God says, I'm going to step in and do this myself. So understand the people who actually are listening to him, which by the way, many are the religious leaders, they recognize what he's saying here. To be the good shepherd, he is claiming to be God. Because it was God who promised he would be the one who would be the good shepherd to step in and depose those who were doing this the wrong way for their own gain. And he'll say it at least three different times here. Now, anyone can claim to be God, so how exactly can this guy prove it when other people can't? Well, he contrasts it with two different things here, two very specific points. Verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd, the first thing is, gives his life for the sheep. He compares that, or contrasts, if you will, with the hireling. This is the hireling, on the other hand, he doesn't do that. The hireling, well, he's not a shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep. He sees a wolf coming and he bails. He bails, and as a result of that, the wolf snatches the sheep. The wolf scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. He doesn't care about the sheep. Now, note in verse 11, Jesus actually says that I give my life, notice it says, gives his life not to the sheep, but for the sheep. Did you notice that? Because there's a difference when you just hand yourself over to the will and fancy of another individual because they may themselves may not know exactly what they want. Well, they may know what they want, but it may not be their best or best for them. But Jesus knew that it wasn't that he was handing himself to people. He was handing himself to the Father. The term to save me, the term for give, in the simplest sense, means kind of puts it on the table. So imagine, if you will, I'm here with Lois and her friends, and we kind of sit here and we're all kind of kind of make a pact. Okay, and we're kind of like, okay, what, what, what resources do we have? We've got people in peril. Somewhere in all of that, Jaden and Marcy have found themselves in a hostage situation. And they're like, well, we want your best. So with all of that, you know, it's kind of, we kind of pull our stuff and we go, okay, what do we have? And, and all of a sudden, it's like Lois kind of comes and she's like, I've got my iPhone. And she throws it on the table. She's like, I don't know, maybe this will get us somewhere. And what's your name? Jenny. Jenny and Christina then both go, well, you know what, I've got an iPad, I'll throw that on, but I'm not recommending this, I just want you to know. This is a weird manipulative tool. And she's, you know, and then she's like, you know what, I have a Starbucks card, and she throws that on the table. And imagine, what we're trying to do is we're trying to pull all of the things that will be necessary, the best we have, because we care enough about Jaden, which 
Jenny's like, I don't know, have I met him? You know, uh, and Marcia, I mean, she seems nice. She's, she is really cool. She'd be worth it. And we're just kind of, okay, so, and then we're kind of going, okay, this is what I have. I have a couple of iPhones, an iPad, and a Starbucks card. Is that good enough? And we're handing it, in this case, to a captain. But imagine, if you will, there's a negotiator, and the negotiator is the person who's actually trying to work out the deal, and we're going to him and going, well, we just need to let you know this is what we have. Jesus comes to the table, and when Jesus comes to the table, he doesn't throw it on a Starbucks card or an iPhone. What Jesus throws down is his own life, and he says, my entire life is here. Use it. If they're in ransom, and that's exactly what it tells us, by the way, because it tells us that God so loved us, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation. When was the last time you used the word propitiation? Any of you? Any of you? Did you ever? I mean, oh, no, this morning I was actually sitting there having some tea and going, oh, propitiation. So you, you, we don't use words like that, but we read them, and we just kind of nod because we don't want to look dumb. The word in the Greek is the word elasmos. Elasmos, by the way, in its simplest sense, means ransom payment. That's the term that he's using. Jesus was actually sent as a ransom to people who were obviously then. I mean, you can't pay a ransom unless a person is a hostage. I mean, otherwise, you just kind of really got duped by some guy in Nigeria somewhere who's trying to, you know. Anyways, you've, you've got those emails. What we read is Jesus looks and he goes, this is how you need to know I'm different. Let's face it, anyone can claim to be God, but this is how you'll know. I'm going to give up my life and take it back. Nobody, I mean, anyone can make that claim, but only one person is going to be able to follow through with it. There have been a lot of people since I've been alive, and that, let me just say, hasn't been that long, that have actually said things of this, of this manner. They said, I'll go to the grave and I'll come out again and that'll prove. And I'm like, yeah, sure, that'll prove it. And they all went to the grave and guess what? They all stayed. Except this guy. You realize, after Jesus rose from the dead, no matter how much we want to be critical, now understand there's a difference between a critic and a cynic. A cynic really doesn't care about the facts. They've just made up their mind, but they'll pretend to be open-minded. Somebody who's going to be critical, on the other hand, they're going to be careful because they want to make sure they don't believe unless there's a, re- there's, unless there's a reason behind it. And I, I, I have a respect for a person who's careful. But let's, let's face it. It wouldn't have taken much to shut down this Christianity thing after Jesus was killed. All you had to do was pull up a body. And you're like, well, but those darn stubborn... You know, disciples. Well, every one of them was tortured to death, except John. So let me ask you, don't you think one of them would have broken by that point? Especially considering one already denied that he knew Jesus on three occasions right before that. The reason I say that is it wouldn't have been that hard to shut this thing down back then. Unless, of course, he was alive. Then you take a bunch of sissies and you would embolden them to a place of insanity, to total madness, if you will, because they were committed beyond their own lives. And that was the point. You need to recognize, of all the people you will choose to actually find care from, this is the one that proved it beyond anyone else. Jesus is like, let's just lay it all on the table. If you were to line up the people that you were like, okay, This is somebody I want to hand my life to in whatever way it is, as a dear friend, as someone that you want to spend the rest of your life with in romance, uh, or whatever the case is, sit them around the table for a moment. And as you're sitting around the table, let me ask you, what are they putting on the table? Is it an iPhone or an iPad? Let's face it, some people we know that we actually want to actually spend the rest of our life with, if we're not careful, if we were genuine, honest about it, we would take a look and realize they wouldn't even put that on the table. 
They'll have all kinds of fancy words. But when it came down to sitting down at the table and putting something on it, there's really not a lot there. And if that's happened to you, the odds are very strong that most of you have had an experience or more like that. I'm sorry. Although I will say it's not my fault. I I didn't do it. Uh, But I will say this. Then you know what it's like to actually hear fine words but have nothing on the table when you're honest about it. And yet Jesus says, let me just make it clear. We sit down at the table. I'm putting my life there. And I'm not giving it to you. I'm giving it for you because you're going to stand guilty before the judge of the universe. And I'd rather pay your bill. The whole purpose of the cross is not to make Jesus cool and not to make him somebody that, you know, so that there's cool amulets we can wear around our neck and go, hey, check it out, I'm, you know, I'm fashionable. It was the most heinous way to torture someone to death. It, it, it could last as long as 11 days. And you, in essence, choke to death, and it's the one natural, involuntary response you possess that will fight the hardest which means you'll be kept alive the longest. So Jesus didn't just jump in front of a bullet for you or for me. And understand, it wasn't a surprise to him. He tells us here, this is really clearly his choice. Because if you are shopping for shepherds, he's sitting at the table and saying, this is the one you should choose. Because let me tell you, there are others on the other end. They're hirelings. What's a hireling? That's a guy that this is his job. He's better than a thief, but he has no commitment and it costs him nothing. Be careful of those. Let me say that again. Be careful of those who sort of make beautiful rhapsodies of commitment, but in the essence of it all, it doesn't cost them a thing. Let's be honest. Truest commitment is proven by the greatest amount of sacrifice. And there could be no greater sacrifice than your own life. So the moment trouble comes, he bails. Because after all, he has no personal investment in the sheep. He has no genuine care for them. So as a result of that, the moment someone comes in that clearly is a predator, he has no willingness whatsoever to do anything to protect them. So he flees because it's only a job. Jesus goes, so on one side you've got a guy that looks like it and he's got all the fine words and he looks like a shepherd, but really when the time comes to put up and sh- or shut up, he shuts up and runs. And I know we've all had hirelings in our life. But then there's a second thing. In verse 14 he says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. Now, This blows away a lot of the concept that we may actually possess about what we think God to be. Because this tells us that Jesus, God in the flesh, as he claims to be it, even stepping into the prophecy of Ezekiel 34, that he actually claims here that he's a knowable God. That he's not just somebody that we can know about and know stats, like someone that's great at football or... Taylor Swift or whatever the case, somebody that we somehow feel a connection with because they write a song that tugs a heartstring or they kick a ball and we go, oh, I, I could do that and I wouldn't be that good. You know, although we know we, we wouldn't. You know, the reason I say that is he's like, look, you can actually know me. And there are two basic Greek words for to know. One word is eidos, and eidos means to perceive. The simplest thing is we could look at that wall, and although that's really not a fair example because it's all kinds of colors, but for the most part, it's kind of white or intended to be. 
Because somewhere down the line, we all sat in school somewhere, and they said that color, or the collection of colors, if you will, is white. So I'll kind of go, it's white. And we perceive that. We didn't have to have any form of experience other than a simple observation. I just know that. How do you know trigonometry? You've been taught it didactively. Chances are it wasn't like you crawled into a rhombus to experience something. And the reason I say that is it's like it's much more of a thing that's simply transferring of information. Well, that is a knowledge, but that's not the knowledge that he has here. Then there's another Greek word, and I love how explicit Greek is. the word gnosko, and it's the word that's often used about a person who claims not to know. By the way, the term agnosto, is it, uh, the letter alpha and a, in essence negates something like theist, atheist. Uh, an agnostic, the word is actually used several times in the New Testament because it was written in Greek, and the word means ignorant. That's what the word means, because you don't know. That's the idea. Now, that particular knowledge is a knowledge by experience, but let's not get that twisted either. Because there's, we tend to think, well, there's a knowledge by experiencing a person, but hear me on this, there's a difference because chances are the thing you experience with the person is going to not be objective because you were actually in the middle of experiencing it. And let's face it, experiences can be not objective. On the other side of it, if I experience something with you, well, now, on the other hand, I learn an awful lot about you. So, here we are. We're back with our friends here. And we're standing on a platform. And as the surf, well, let's just add a cool while we're at it, because it's a great scene. So let's just say that the five, one, two, three, four, five, the five of us are sort of standing on a platform. And as we're standing on a platform, all of a sudden this guy in this giant clown outfit comes running by and he's squeaking. And then he throws himself in front of a train. Now, the way that each of you respond and that I respond will actually help us to understand a little bit more about each other and how we handle those kind of stressful situations. If we were in this situation right now when somebody, and this is not planned and there's no one I intend, comes running in with some kind of automatic weapon and he's like, I'm the next guy, I'm going to make history for this. The way that we all respond, we will always remember that moment. Now, I didn't experience you in that moment, but we had experience together. Does that make sense? And because of that, I'll be able to look and go, you know, I remember how you were in this situation. You kept your cool. Or, you know, let's face it, like kind of those horror films, there's always the faller. And then there's always the like, superhero that falls because he gets, he's one of the first to die. You know? And the reason I say that is it's like they're kind of characters and you kind of go, okay, if we were in a tragic situation, because we've been in a couple of those crazy situations, who would I want by my side? Because I have those experiences with you. The reason I say that, that's the word Jesus uses here. When he goes, look at I know my sheep because the only way for that to happen is, can I just dare say it? We have to be together. I mean, we can't have these corporate experiences unless there's a corporation. But if we're in the same place, on that platform, or whatever the case, here in church and some crazy happens, or whatever, you know, I mean, today we'll be able to look and see the situation with Adam and Angel, and we'll be able to go, remember that day, and we'll see who cries and who doesn't, and we'll see, you know, who stands up and does the wave and who applauds. I mean, those are things we'll be able to watch and gather because we'll have that corporate experience, and we'll be able to go and go, wasn't that cool? Remember that day. Remember how cool that was? And that guy he talked on forever, but man, it made sense. And the reason I say that is Jesus is saying, look, at, I don't want you just to know my stats. I want to be able to spend the rest of eternity with you, starting now, so that from this point on, I'll be able to go, I remember. I remember what you were like there. Okay, quick story, and we can close this up, because really the rest of it is kind of just a couple of quick points. 
There was a time when we spent an awful lot of time doing sort of mission work, looking and scouting different ministries around the world that we could invest in. Orphanages, uh, well diggers, uh, whatever we could to sort of help in places that were, for the most part, third world and, and, and definitely in places that were of greater need, at least as we saw it. And one of the places we went to was in Tanzania. When we went and landed in Tanzania, it was three of us. It was myself and one of my assistants and a, an A&E surgeon named Greg Fry, one of my favorite people. He, and he, just, he was classic like that. He had the silver hair and that whole bed. I mean, hi. He was just like that. He was always smooth. Great guy. Anyways, they both were. They probably still are. Anyways, with that said, we landed. We brought materials with us. These big duffel bags, each one weighing about 40 to 50 kilos a piece. They were heavy. Yeah, granted, they were heavier than us, or nearly. And uh, we were taking these things, and so they were, we each had two bags a piece because we were going to go and try to reach out to a group of people that were really in need. So there were three of us, that's six bags, that's pretty simple. And the guy, and we get to meet the pilot. Now the pilot, in America, now that's not necessarily the case here, but in America it's always the pilots and the doctors that always have the silver hair and the smoothness about them. Well, this guy was an American pilot, and you could tell, he kind of, I mean, him and Greg just hit it off because they were just kind of the same guy. And, and he kind of looked and he's like, oh. And he looked and he kind of goes, so what's going and what's not? Because we're going to fly from Dar Salaam down to the middle somewhere into Dodoma and then ultimately go out deep into the bush. While that's the case, he kind of looks at him like, what do you mean? What's going to go and what's not? It's all going. And he kind of looks and he's like, hmm, it's a three-person Cessna. And it's not really meant to carry all this weight. So the potential of the three of you, and by the way, another guy as well, the guy that was our handler, uh, William Zindi, and this pilot, that makes five of us on this plane. It's already too much. But then there's not only the five of us, there are in essence six dead bodies to be taken with us as far as weight is concerned. And then he goes, and I'm like, yeah, we kind of, this was for children and this is for people in different tribes. What do you suggest? And he's like, well, you know, I've lived a full life. Let's just give it a try. I look at the two guys that are with me and they both kind of go, I don't know if I've lived a full life yet. So, you know. And so we get, so he loads this all up and we're kind of now, you ever like in one of those situations where you're kind of in the van next to four people and you know you shouldn't be and you know if we all die right now, it will take them forever to pull apart whose bone is which? Well, we were in that situation. And by God's grace, the runway was two and a half times the length of an average runway because it took that long to get off the, off the ground. Because he was, and it was rough. Now, ultimately, and again, we hadn't met this guy except for this moment. We ultimately get off the air, uh, get off the ground, and then the, the kind of the train, the plane's kind of doing this, kind of like I think I can, I think I can, and he kind of gets up, and we get to this spot, and now we start flying, and we're like, oh, good. Now I have a friend who's a pilot, and he says that a pilot basically is this this huge amount of space of total and absolute sheer boredom bookended by moments of absolute terror because it's the taking off and the landing are the dangerous parts. Everything else is usually okay. Well, so we're on. Well, this was different. So here we are. We kind of hit this point. And as we're flying, we hit this moment. And, and this apparently is a fairly common thing, I guess, in Africa. I wasn't alerted to it. We had a thing called a, a draft, an updraft. Have you heard of these things? These heat drafts that come out of the ground. Now, there's an alarm that goes on in a plane when this happens, and it sounds just like a car accident. 
It's like this. <laughs> it's totally what it sounds like. Now, we didn't see it coming, so we're flying, and all of a sudden it goes, <laughs> and then the plane drops 30, 30 meters, just like this. So, you know, it's like one of those, like, Tower of Terror moments where, like, all of your intestines are in your brains at this moment. And you're like, uh. Now, here's the worst part. We're all guys, you know, and you know what that means? None of us want to look as terrified as we are, right? So, you know, I was like, yeah, that was, that was pretty crazy. But, yeah, it was crazy. Now, because I'm not the handler, the handler's up in the front. We're shoved in the back like Charlie's Angels. And as we're shoved in the back, I am just looking at the moment at the pilot. Because, let's face it, the pilot's the one who you just want to make sure is cool with it. Because no matter how much everyone else is panicking like a pansy, as long as he's cool with it, well, then it couldn't be that bad because he's the pilot. He's used to this. So I kind of look over and he's like, oh, that's an updraft. Okay, good, good, good. That was normal. And I just had an experience. I had a corporate experience where I knew that if that kind of happens again, well, this guy's going to be able to handle it. Nothing bad about it. Well, it happened again. The second time it happens, though, like most stories, it gets worse. Now we drop twice as much as we did before, and now the sound hits. And the moment you hit that, you hear that sound, you're like, oh, no, and off you go. Now, at this point, it gets crazier because now he's like, oh, we're going to have to go higher to get out of this. And we're in this tiny little plane with way too much weight. And he goes, we're going to have to get above 10,000 feet. Do you know what happens once you get above 10,000 feet? Yeah, the oxygen thins out a lot. So now you get all kinds of spacey and you get, you know, altitude. There's all kind of fun things that happen. But as we're on our way up, we hit the third one, and it is the mother of all vents. And he goes, Aah! and we're like, Whoa! and I thought we were going to bounce off the ground. And at this point, I kind of look over, and there's our A&E surgeon, and he's staring into a barf bag like this. And my assistant pastor is actually trying to find coverage to text his wife one last time that he loves her. I kid you not. And I learned a lot about every one of those guys. Now, obviously, we landed, and it was okay, but it was quite an experience. But I looked over at the pilot, and at that moment, the pilot, you could tell he was sweating, and his knuckles were so white. And he's like, well, that wasn't normal. And he's kind of doing this. And I'm like, okay. But he held it together. Thank the Lord he held it together. Now, here's the whole point of it. If you're the pilot and those things hit, you better know what you're doing. But if somebody else is the pilot and you're in those crazy situations where your whole life goes, BAM! Like that, you kind of want to make sure the guy knows that this is not a surprise to him. You want to make sure that he knows how to handle the plane. Well, understand the plane in this situation, if you will, kind of emblemizes the whole idea of our whole life. And you're going to hit these moments where you're just going to hit the mat, like it or not, and they're going to come out of nowhere. And when that happens, if you're trying to run your life at a moment like that, how many of us in this room really genuinely think you're not going to spiral? But I am so thankful I know the one person that has carried me through every one of those crazy moments, and we've been through seasons where you're like, this, we'll never make it to the other end unless you pilot this. And Jesus looks at these people and he goes, you need to know two things. One is, I am committed to you to death. And the second is, you can know me. I'm not just someone you can know about. And because you know me, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I'm known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know my Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now I have other sheep which are not of this fold. By the way, that's you and me. In other words, when Jesus is speaking this 2,000 years ago, you were on his mind. And he goes, look, I have other sheep who are not in this fold. Them I must also bring in. They will hear my voice. There will be one flock. 
And one shepherd, the good shepherd searches out all the sheep to bring them together into one fold under one shepherd to be one flock. And he says, therefore, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Look at verse 18. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to take it again, and I have this command I receive from my father. Now, don't miss this, because this answers an age-old question. The question is, who killed Jesus? If Hitler had read this, what, would he have come, what conclusion would he have made? Because according to this, Jesus says, nobody, notice what it says in verse 18, nobody takes my life from me. Jesus willingly handed over his life. So the answer, who actually killed Jesus? First of all, the answer is no one. Jesus volunteered. But the second answer is everyone, because we read that it was because of our guilt that he chose that. If I wasn't guilty, he wouldn't have made the choice. But because I had a guilt that needed to be paid for and he would rather actually me not pay for it, he volunteered in my stead. So that is why I can't look at somebody and go, oh, the Jews, or oh, the Romans, or oh, the whoever's. The bottom line is Jesus said, none of this is happening without my permission and I'm doing it willingly. But you need to recognize, though I lay down my life, I have the power to take it up again. So you never have to worry about it. Jesus knew that death was not an end. It was a corridor. It was a means to an end. And in that same way, those hirelings, the sheep were the end. They weren't the, well, they were the means to an end. They were a means to whatever benefited them. And the moment it didn't, they were done. And that's pretty much most of the people you know. Let's be honest. As long as you have something to offer them, they're cool with you. But the moment you run out, they run out too. And you realize Jesus is like, that is not me. Don't compare me to other people because I'm not that guy. And that's why we use the term holy. All that holy means, dare I say it, is weird, unique, different. That's what the term means. In other words, Jesus is like, we would say, you're no one like anyone I've known. He goes, yeah, you're right. Now, the response to that in our final verses, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. Many of them said he's a demon, he's mad, why do you listen to him? Others said, these aren't the words of one who was a demon. This all started in John 9, by the way, of Jesus healing a man who's never seen. In the end, now, as we close this, let me ask right now, there will be division in this room. You'll listen to this and you'll go, this is madness. Come on. God clothing himself in flesh, dying and raising again from the dead. I've heard the story before. It just sounds insane. There are others who will see the transformation that's made in the lives of people like this man that was born blind and then now can see, and it'll haunt you to the point where you finally realize this is not insanity. This is actually clarity. You know, in a moment here, we're going to pray. We'll take a break, because I know this is kind of weird, like a double hitter. We're going to have, and we're going to have communion. And then... Uh, and when we take that break, I just want you to know that when we resume again, we'll be celebrating two people whose lives have been so changed, so transformed, they serve as evidence like this man born blind. Some of you, you are here because of that. You're here because you've seen such a change in them, you realize, you go, well, this sounds like madness, but this quote-unquote madness is the difference in a couple that were at each other's throats, if you will, to this point where they're in each other's arms. But please hear me as we close this. You're going to have to choose a shepherd today, one way or another. I mean, you can choose yourself. I'm the gatekeeper of my own destiny, but look at your own track record. Has every choice you've made always been good? 
Have you chosen the right people to give your heart to always? Has it always been with great results? Are you powerful enough even to execute your will and the things that you think are, be- are best? Let's be honest. If we look back, the scars that we bear on ourselves, especially in our hearts, they're testimony that we are terrible shepherds of ourselves. And to actually continue to jump on that sounds like madness to me. Well, you can choose another person. By the way, I am not volunteering. I am not seeking in that sense to be the person you soak your life into because I'm just a human being like you. And if it weren't for the grace of God, I would be actually doing things that you don't even want to know about. But let's face it, even if a person means well, that doesn't mean they have enough power to fulfill those things or they're committed enough to actually go and take them to the other side. Or you can choose Jesus, who for the love of you, not because he was contractually obligated, but for the love of you, took your guilt and mine, threw it upon his shoulders, and died on a cross so that you never have to think for a moment that it wasn't paid in full. I mean, how much more would you have to do to somebody to pay for all the things you've ever done wrong? I mean, we're talking about the stuff you don't even want to look at when you think about who you are. I mean, if you were to take every nasty thought, I mean, could you imagine just thinking of every nasty thought you've ever thought or every nasty thing you've ever said and you actually roll all of those in front of you for a moment, how long before you're so nauseous you're throwing up because of it? And then let's add to that the way that you've hated people sometimes without good reason, most of the time without good reason, and the nasty things you've intended that you've never had the courage to fulfill or the things you've actually been that you've fulfilled and now you regret. Put all of that on a person. Now, how would you punish them? Torturing him to death? Wouldn't that be proof enough to you that it was actually paid in full? Jesus says, you know, if you're willing, I am. Jesus speaking. I want to cover you and love you and protect you. I've learned that shepherds lead, guide, guard, love, and feed. That's what they do. And I realize as I seek to be an under-shepherd to follow the shepherd, I just want to do that. I just won't do it perfectly. But he does. And Jesus was committed to death so he could offer you new life because he handed his life over as a ransom to pay for full. And he's almighty, so you never have to worry about him having good intentions he can't fulfill. Now as we go to prayer... Let me ask, genuinely, what's holding you back? I mean, is it like, well, there's this priest in Ireland, or there's this, what about the Pope, or what about the Inquisitions, or what about, it's interesting, because there have been, you know, there have been rapes as long as we've known human beings, so to speak, yet but it doesn't stop you from looking for love. Because something inside of you is hungry for that even though you've seen horrible counterfeits and terrible misjustices, something inside of you craves it anyways. And if you're going to be honest, all of the misuses and counterfeits that have actually portrayed themselves and purported themselves as something right, that you know were not right, doesn't negate the fact that there is a God who wants you and loves you and he actually paid the price. Now, who in their right mind chooses to pay a bill that somebody else has already paid? How is that sane? So as we go to prayer, I would like to invite you today to that. I'm not going to call you forward or ask you to jump or to start yelling for snake oil or any of that because that just doesn't make sense to me. But I will say this. Somewhere down the line, Adam had to ask Angel and somewhere down the line, Angel said yes. And God's asking you, will you take my love? Will you let me cover you in that? Will you let me 
I've paid the bill, but I'm just asking for your permission now to actuate it. Can you say yes to that? You're like, well, well, what changes is he going to make in my life? Well, there's only one way to find out. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know that for some, this is probably the lengthiest they've ever heard anyone talk about you. But I know, Lord, that you've come today to make clear to them in so many words that you're not asking them to join a political movement or just consign themselves to a bunch of traditions or somehow now they're just supposed to like stained glass and incense. You're inviting them into a relationship. But that relationship has one dampering factor to it. There's something in between a wall, and that wall is that there is a guilt that we in our own selves have rightly earned. Me too. But that didn't stop you. It didn't change your mind. And you offer more than just to be a kind judge. Because if you're going to be a rightful judge, you have to punish all wrong. But if you're going to be a loving judge, you want to love the person who's committed it. And, and I, I just, you're the only one, and this book is the only one that actually shows how both can happen. And Lord, I just pray right now that your spirit would work in our hearts and show us that this is the truth. And here in this moment, if there be any or many who are crazy enough in the best of ways, brave enough to just say yes, because somehow you know in your heart of hearts that this is actually true. Pray this prayer with me right now. This may be the first prayer you've ever really prayed, but hear it. And, and, and I'm not even asking you to repeat after me because how you don't even know what I'm going to say and that just sounds weird. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you genuinely agree, give me a confident amen. And what you're actually saying isn't that's the end, that's, that puts the full stop on it. But what you're saying is I agree. Okay, I consign myself to that. Let that prayer be mine now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I don't come to you in my own merit as if somehow... I'm awesome in and of myself. I come to you as a person who's guilty because I've thought wrong and felt wrong and did wrong and like everybody else. And you're a righteous judge, so you punish that. But you're also a loving God. And so you volunteered because you had no sin yourself. You volunteered to take my place. And you took all of my filth and my shame and my regret upon your shoulders and then nailed it to a cross. And when you died there, my bill was paid. Tetelestai, you said, painful. And when you were buried, that was buried for good. But just like you promised on at least six, seven different occasions prior to your death, you would rise again to prove that not only was it paid for, but that you were everything you said you are. And when you rose again, you ignited the hearts of frail, 
feeble, frightened men to run into the world and tell them what they saw. And today here, if you're really offering me the absolution of my sins, if you're really offering me purity in exchange for all of this muck and filth, I'd be foolish to say no. I may not understand everything, but boy, I understand that. And you're offering yourself as a shepherd, as one who cares for animals that would be prone to wander, that would be prone to be weak, that are more prey than predator. And So I know that I'm not offering this trying to prove that I'm worth it or that I'm awesome and you can get behind me, but rather you offer to care for me. And I say yes. I hand my life to you, Jesus, to be the shepherd of it. I'm tired of doing it myself. So please have me now. I give myself to you, Jesus, in your name. If you agree with that prayer, now that you've heard it, will you give me right now just a confident amen? Are you here, Lord? You hear these. Now, cement that in our hearts. So when we walk out of here, it's not just an emotional thing, but a real thing. And I know, Lord, you take us seriously. So have your way now, I pray. Jesus, in your name, amen.